0: Welcome to Farm to Tabor. Today we've got Carrie Lee Merritt, a historian of the South and from the South about a side of our history that doesn't get talked about much. I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that most black folks in the U.S. are fully aware that slavery was bad for their ancestors, but most white folks in the U.S. would be really surprised to find out that slavery and Jim Crow were also really horrible for most of us. Dr. Merritt is the author of Masterless Men, a fantastic book on poor whites and their lives in the pre-Civil War South. Because we're living in a political moment where a lot of white Americans are having nostalgia about the old days and wishing that we were great again, Team W, we need to have a talk about how those old days really worked, and Carrie Lee Merritt is going to help us out. Don't get me wrong, if you were a rich white person, the good old days were awesome, and most of us were not the fancy rich white people. So let me set the stage a little bit. Before the Civil War, slave owners cheated, swindled, and abused everybody, including poor whites. They stole their land and used it to get rich growing cotton. They put poor white folks in jail on petty charges just to remind them who was boss. They beat, extorted, sexually assaulted, and murdered poor white folks all the time, and got away with it every time because they owned the courts. But after the Civil War, ex-slave owners were in a tight spot.
1: Damn! We're in a tight spot!
0: Their biggest source of income was taken away, so they needed a new hustle to stay on top and they suddenly needed political support from other people. Thus began one of the biggest marketing projects in human history, the idea of white solidarity. Using their remnants of control over education and civic institutions, the South's landowning class went on a campaign to convince poor whites that not only were they friends, but we'd always been friends. The fact that most poor whites voted not to secede, that they saw the Civil War as a rich man's power grab and deserted or straight up rebelled against their superiors during the Civil War, were politely forgotten. The war's rich, bitter losers ordered cheap, mass-produced statues of the common Confederate soldier from foundries in Connecticut and erected them all over the South with speeches about the noble lost cause. Books depicting all white lives before the Civil War as rosy and peaceful and elevated by the institution of slavery. But... There was a problem with books. The South's upper crust had made sure that the poor masses never learned how to read. So books were useless for propaganda. So ex-slave owners and the estates they left behind were enthusiastic adopters of new technologies like film with Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind and other political pieces masquerading as entertainment. If you look at the reality of Southern life before the war versus how it was marketed afterwards, there's a level of cultural myth-making there that would make Stalin blush. So Carrie Lee Merritt's going to peel back the Hollywood version and walk us through some of those realities of life for poor whites before the Civil War and into the Jim Crow era. And to repeat, we're not focusing on poor whites here because they're more important or somehow had it worse than Black or Native peoples in the South at that time, or who were actually enslaved. It's because Black and Native Americans already know this stuff and don't need to hear it from me. It's Team W that's forgotten a lot of things about our own past that we're letting get used against us today. I'd love to have just kind of a quick explainer on what life was actually like for Four Whites. Like there's this Mm -hmm. impression that life was great for all the white people and you have a great counter narrative so we should cover that just so people are on up to speed.
1: Well, I grew up basically as a poor white. And even though my parents are, are you know, the American dream, they're, they're quite well off now. Um, in the early years, it was tough. I mean, we were, we were on, you know, food stamps. Um, my, both my parents were in school, actually. I grew up in, in student housing yeah, yeah. in Southern Mississippi. Um, but growing up in Southern Mississippi, I was the minority, right? Whites were the minority. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, noticing race um, was immediate. It was, it was always there. Um, I would go back up to the uh, foothills of Appalachia to visit where my parents actually came from yeah. um, this old mill village my mom grew up in a mill village house and my grandmother basically had a sixth or seventh grade education you know dropped out of school to pick cotton and work in the cotton mills and I, I think she was you know relatively close to being illiterate you know she's probably only semi-literate yeah. And so I always, race and class in the South um, was something so clear to me from the time I could conceptualize anything.
0: Right. It was just always there, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. And like I, I say quite commonly, when you go to this, I go visit my grandmother's town and the upper and middle in, the middle and upper classes um, the parts of town that they lived in it was completely segregated you know whites and blacks did not live together but if you go to the poorest part of the town where my mom grew up in these mill village houses it was completely integrated um, right. and I'm not again not solving the people like poor people of racism but it is a different type of racism when you work with people when you trade with people when you live with people on a daily basis
0: right. Yeah, and I think uh, there's some really interesting points to be made that, you know, the the racism and the structure of the South were really different before and after the Civil War. And a lot of, you know, segregation and how we're used to thinking of racism working was really just a post-Jim Crow phenomenon. And it was built to keep whites and blacks from building lives together, but also they didn't really feel a need to try that hard with the poorest people because they weren't going to get up to anything, it almost feels like.
1: Right, right. It was it was completely different. You're right. Um, W.E.B. W.E.B. Du Bois had it completely right. There was a, a big shift in race and class in the, you know, the few years after the end of the Civil War. Um, and, and those few years, actually, both he and other historians have held those few years right after the Civil War as the primary time there could have been a biracial coalition. And you see these. Um, black politicians during these years really courting poor white votes. They're throwing, you know, having these big conventions, um, big speeches where there are hundreds of poor whites listening, and they're talking directly to poor whites, telling them why they should band together with blacks, um, how it would benefit them from a socioeconomic level.
0: Right. Which is just not really something you think about happening in the 1800s and early 1900s today. That's like unthinkable. Well, by the 1900s it was gone, but it's, it's just unthinkable at this time.
1: Yes, I mean we see we see a little bit of it still. <laughs> I like to argue, you know, even in the modern day poor people's campaign, that's yeah. a biracial coalition, yeah, it's a multiracial like, coalition. Yeah, um, like so people I, do I it give now. All that a little bit yeah. of hope. I hope there's, you know, I, and, then, and actually, I just read before um, got on this call, um, the Root just put out an article about Stacey Abrams' election in Georgia, and it shows that in Middle Georgia, you know, right in the heart of the plantation belt mm-hmm. where slavery was the strongest. Um, she actually had a lot of um, white voters mm-hmm. voting for her. She's, she was great at getting these rural whites to vote for her by going down there, by grassroots campaigning, and, and showing them, um, you know, what, uh, you know, by making a political change, what it could do for their lives economically.
0: Right, yeah. So, sorry, that was not to say like that's unthinkable for people to do now, but nowadays when you think about the 1800s, you're like, there's no way that was happening, but it was. And yeah, I think there's um, there's a lot of unrecognized uh, bridge building that happens in the rural South that folks who aren't there don't recognize because no one's ever like no one with a platform is ever there to see it. Um, exactly. Yeah, like we're going around personally to Bladen County, knocking doors, you know, like getting people statements on what happened with this nco 9 mess. Because at the time of this recording, we're having uh, some what looks like election fraud happening, and it. Doesn't work out like you think it would. You know, there's a lot of uh, biracial anger towards the upper class in that rural area that did this.
1: Yes, I mean, it's the same as as you said back in the antebellum period, a lot of the um, a lot of the reasons that the enslaved and free blacks and poor whites all kind of banded together socially many times was because they shared a hatred of the slaveholders of the upper class elite whites.
0: Right. So let's talk about why poor whites would not love slave owners. This is like, it feels well, like new ground for a lot of folks.
1: Right. I, there's a multitude of reasons. <laughs> um, basically, they were smart enough to realize that slavery hurt their lives um, socioeconomically. They saw, and, and my, my book really focuses on the Deep South, so I, I look mainly at South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Um, And I show that in the 1830s and 40s, as there's this massive relocation of um, about 800,000 slaves from the upper south moved into the lower south. um, And that displaces a lot of poor white laborers who had always worked in agriculture. Mm -hmm. Um, Slaveholders, you know, much preferred the work of slaves, you know, they could brutalize them, they could uh, incentivize them in many different violent ways to work um, much harder than they could a poor white man. And so they were basically put out of work, underemployed, unemployed. Um, They become this mobile labor force. Traveling around the South, it's a very highly mobile society, constantly looking for work, um, mainly in you know burgeoning construction, infrastructure, um, extractive industries, and even in uh, you know the new kind of cotton mills springing up in Appalachia. Right. But I mean, slavery was so detrimental to them. They saw that they couldn't earn a living wage when they had to compete with slave labor, and so they began forming these, what they call, mechanics associations in the 1850s, and they're essentially labor unions. Mm -hmm. And these men are are directing their anger at slaveholders and and saying, unless you do something to protect our jobs and protect our wages um, to keep us from having to compete with brutalized enslaved labor, um, we're going to withdraw our support for slavery altogether. And, And so I argue that this... This kind of sentiment, um, you know, having to defend slaveholders were having to defend slavery not only from the enslaved and from northern abolitionists and Republicans, but then also poor whites. Um, they, they basically had no no recourse but to secede.
0: Right. Yeah. Just politically, in order to stay in control. Like, as long as it was legal for poor whites to vote, they were going to have some trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's
1: exactly why Charleston. Is the place that a lot of these firebrands get their start because Charleston, these older slave states like South Carolina and Georgia are seeing their slaves then in the eighteen late eighteen forties, eighteen fifties drained off west, you know, to Mississippi, Texas, Arkansas, these newer cotton lands, fresher cotton lands, and at the same time. Charleston's getting this influx of immigrant laborers, white immigrants, mainly famine Irish, quite a bit from Germany as well, but mainly famine Irish. And they're militant laborers. They're forming unions. Um, they're demanding certain things from employers. They're trying to get blacks to join their unions. And, and so you know, the elite Charleston um, society knew that this was gonna be a huge problem for them, for them because they couldn't beat into submission white laborers the same way they did black laborers
0: right and it's such an interesting part of history and interesting how this all kind of got erased because when you think pre-civil war south you don't think like massive civil unrest labor movements like you don't think about that um because of the narrative that's really been put out there which is like oh it was a lost cause it was pastoral it's just so nice um and there's like all this violence and anger that was happening in this you know the pre-civil war South was not a happy place, and you exactly. just never hear about that.
1: Exactly, and there's a reason. You know, there's a reason because white supremacists have written our history, mm-hmm. and they want it to appear that there was a solid white South that, that slavery and even racism and Jim Crow always lifted even the poorest white man up. And that's true to a certain degree, but it's certainly not true um, when you look at the material realities of of, of working class whites or poor whites either you know, back in the 1800s or today. Um, they're pretty horrible by national standards and certainly by you know, developed nation standards, horrible. People are dying, you know, white people are dying. Um, lifespans are being shortened right now. You know, the, the case in Deaton paper, mm-hmm. um, white America, rural, rural white America is in crisis right now. And it's something that our media is not touching.
0: Right, yeah. And it's it's really fascinating to see kind of the parallels with, um, you know, back in plantation times, or, you know, back in antebellum times, the planter class and the slaveholding class really relied on illiteracy, you know, like, we're not going to fund public education at all, because then people can talk to each other and write to each other, and they can read books talking about how their situation is bad. The poor whites and enslaved people and free blacks knew that they were having a bad situation, but there's only so much communicating and organizing they could do about it when they were illiterate. And that was very much done on purpose. And again, even to this day, you see a lot of that. We have uh, a lot of the campaigns to cut public education really have always begun in the South, Um, especially the segregation academies. Okay, now we've decided it's okay to educate all white children, but we still don't want to educate black children. Uh, Education and the lack thereof has always been used as a tool by the white upper class in the South uh, to maintain not just political and economic, but also like sociological and emotional control.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, education and and the lack of education, withholding education becomes a form of censorship. Mm -hmm. And slaveholders had this down pat. I mean, they knew uh, you know not only by keeping poor whites illiterate could they keep them from reading about their own rights um, as laborers as white men um, but also they could keep them from teaching uh, blacks how to read you know i mean there was this huge underground economy going on where um, blacks and poor whites were trading mm-hmm. um, behind the backs of slaveholders, and and it would be easy enough to see, and, and many abolitionist papers warned of this, um, <laughs> that poor whites could trade you know, teaching, reading, writing mm-hmm. to um, Blacks for something like corn or meat.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually brings up something really interesting that I wanted to kind of follow up on your book and kind of tie it into something that's happening currently. So apparently one of the reasons that uh, anti-miscegenation or like anti-mixed you know, marriage race, uh, mixed race marriage laws became a thing was because in the early plantation era, um, a lot of white women would have relationships with enslaved men because guys who lived on plantations had access to storehouses and could steal things and provide food. And in some cases, maybe be better providers than free white men. And this enraged everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, were led to mixed-race children who would be free because at that time they hadn't invented the one-drop rule yet, so you had, you'd have free black people running around and that would be crazy. And it just really broke down the barriers of how the society was supposed to work, and so they really had to start controlling white women's sexuality and um, putting up a lot of sh- um, shame and stigma around having relationships with black men. Um, of course white or white men having relationships with black women that was totally fine but the other way it was not okay and um i just think this has some interesting tie-ins to the current uh fear and alt-right talking point of cucking which is fascinating
1: oh yeah absolutely i see so many ties between those two things <laughs> um and, and i think that that is the root of a lot of of their racism right mm-hmm. is is this kind of um they feel effeminate and kind of desexualized because they're unable to provide you know they're living in their parents basement or whatever they can't provide (laughs) for a family um it's it is this kind of like psychic death of whiteness that we really need to have a conversation about um but yeah you're absolutely right there were many many poor white women um we still don't know the numbers because um let's be completely honest a lot of uh, um you know, the resulting pregnancies of these relationships, they were killed by infanticide. You know, mm-hmm. the mothers killed these mixed-race babies. Uh, the, these these cases turn up all over the place mm-hmm. in the Antebellum South in coroner's reports. And usually courts, uh, the local um, sheriffs, they didn't do anything about it because— you know, they didn't care if, um, mm-hmm. you know, a mother got rid of another free black in the area, basically. But, right. they're, but they're policing women's sexuality constantly. It's mm-hmm. it's a big reason they're policing alcohol, mm-hmm. um, because they knew that alcohol would then lead to
0: sex. Mm-hmm. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, just alcohol has this way of breaking down social barriers. and uh, Oh, yes. Can't have that. It's a really messed up morality here, because we've got a bunch of Bible-thumping Southerners who are actually just fine with killing babies and... We don't even know how many people who would have otherwise lived their lives black and free were lost to this but alcohol was a sin
1: yes i mean there are some great court cases where they're talking about you know they're they're arresting these women for vagrancy because they're laying drunkenly in the streets with their clothes almost strewn off of them you know and it's just so sexual it's like they can't handle themselves
0: Mm -mm. nope yeah it was kind of interesting too how alcohol and especially distilled liquor kind of turned into this currency and they got so angry that people were trading liquor for other things. And you're like, well, you guys built a cashless economy where there is no cash to get paid in. The only way to get paid for, like, official jobs was through plantation script, like you mentioned a lot of times. Like, people wouldn't actually get paid in money. So if they wanted mm-hmm. to buy something, they had to buy something else. And
1: right. If you don't have cash in, in your economy, then whoever is paying you has complete control over what you can purchase right yeah. and so unless you're trading in an underground network of some sort you have very limited options um as a consumer
0: mm-hmm. yeah so liquor was kind of like the uh the underground cash of choice and maybe that was another reason they just didn't like it
1: absolutely and i mean what else is there to do right i mean that's <laughs> that's that's that's, that's a, such an escape in such a hard horrible miserable existence you know yeah. there's a reason people call it medicine
0: hmm Right. Ah, oh, good times. Um, let's see. We have another couple questions that we wanted to cover here. Um, we covered that vagrancy. We should talk about vagrancy and what vagrancy as a crime meant and how it was used.
1: Vagrancy um, was actually what I wrote my master's thesis on. It's what uh-huh. actually gave me and my first in into. Finding these poor white people um, since they were illiterate, I could find them through court records. Right. And I noticed that vagrancy um, arrests were quite frequent in the South. And of course, vagrancy is the only crime that you can literally be arrested for doing nothing. Right. You know, standing on a street corner, you know, minding your own business, you can be arrested because you're not working. Um, and, and they actually used it. Uh, the laws were actually very tersely written, and so these local ju- uh, judges could interpret the laws however they wanted to. They'd arrest women, you know, for, for using lewd language, um, you know, and imprison them for vagrancy. Uh, I would have had a problem <laughs> definitely back then. Um, but you know, it was it was a catch-all to basically lock away the people they didn't want around. Um, they locked them away for longer than they would lock away somebody um who killed somebody Mm -hmm. it was almost a, a between a two and a four year uh prison sentence for most cases um just crazy when you actually think about it's not really a crime you know it's a behavior that you're being arrested for
0: right it was basically illegal to not be working for the man all the time which is fascinating
1: Right. It's, it's a way for um, local employers to uh, force people into working for them at whatever wage they want to pay um, as well. And if they don't, then they'd be arrested and sometimes even bound out um, mm-hmm. then as, you know, basically indentured laborers to other people in the community.
0: Right. So on an interesting connection with that to the modern day, uh, <laughs> I've got a podcast from the, the previous season talking about my experiences working with inmate labor crews on farms Absolutely. Yeah. This is exactly.
1: I mean, the, the connections are so clear. Right. And even in antebellum prisons, I mean, they're working them the same way as they as they even do now. Um, mm-hmm. There's not much has changed.
0: Right. Um, yeah. It's the exact same thing. And vagrancy, I don't think, is technically a crime anymore or prosecuted as much. But minor drug charges are kind of like the modern day equivalent of that. I mean, like all these guys you're working with. Are harmless. That's why you can put them out on a farm with farm tools and expect nobody to get murdered, right? Um, exactly. <laughs> they're just like wait and exactly. Xbox kids. They're like, let's arrest them. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, they just substituted different uh, behavioral crimes for vagrancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and vagrancy, of course, right after the Civil War, um, after emancipation, then um, goes from being a, a crime where poor whites were almost solely prosecuted for it to a crime that, you know, almost only blacks are being prosecuted for. And additionally, the penalties become much more severe and much more violent and brutal. Yay. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: As every other crime, you know, that gets adapted to how do we police poor people who are actually, I mean, poor black people who are actually free.
0: Yeah, there's a there's some interesting uh, parallel here with you mentioned the first time we found this prosecuted was actually in the Middle Ages in England. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: It started happening after the Black Death um, and as people are fleeing different localities and leaving and and, leaving. you know, Britain becomes much more uh, a highly mobile society where it's not these close kinship networks, and there are people coming in and out of your you know little communities. And so it's a way to to kind of police your home. And and if you don't know somebody um, that comes in through your town, if you've got any worries about them, you can lock them up for a few days and figure out um, you know why they're there right. and what they're doing. But then of course it becomes connected to labor and being able to coerce or force people to labor for you, right. um, almost a form of serfdom.
0: Right. Yeah. And it was in a lot of ways, like an attempt to, to kind of recapture the magic of serfdom. Like uh, after the black death, so many serfs died that again, people could go on the road and get a better gig. Um, so they kind of had to like keep them from going on the road in order to just keep that sweet surf action going. Right. And uh, I don't know. I think that's a really interesting parallel because you know, the, the traditional narrative or like the invisible hand version would be when the labor supply goes down, wages must go up. And I think this is a really great example of how that's not true. People in power will use anything they can to, you know, keep the math from actually happening. Right. Um, there's a low supply. And instead of we don't want to pay the wage, we'll just find some other way to crack down and force people to keep working for the wage we want. And, right. Um, and yeah. and
1: this is something I'm trying to a concept I'm trying to bring from economists uh, to historians right now. It's called monopsony. Yes. Monopsony. And so, you know, if, if in one area you have one or two um, employers or hirers. Mm-hmm. Um, then as a laborer, you really have no labor power. You don't have an option. You know, even mm-hmm. if you strike, what are you going to do? You've got nowhere to go <laughs> unless you actually leave the area.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I I feel like you see a lot of that going on today is uh, we're having these immigration crackdowns for a variety of reasons. But one of them is um, the immigrant labor force has actually been declining for several years. You know, like Mm -hmm. people are not coming to the U.S. as much to work and wages have been going up and landowners are not happy about this. And uh, I think a lot of the immigration crackdowns, you know, they're The result of a lot of things, but I think landowner resentment over increased worker power due to reduced numbers is a big one. They're like, I feel like I'm not as in control as I want to be and I'm acting out.
1: Oh, I completely see that. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense because, you know, a lot of the people that used to come and work our farms are going up to to Canada and places that'll treat them better, where they have access to, you know, some kind of health care or any kind of benefits in society.
0: Right, yeah, and sometimes they're just not even leaving home. They're like, listen, if I had to choose between the U.S. and Mexico, I'm actually down with Team Mexico right now. So, right. <laughs> there's some of that happening.
1: I, I'm, I'm down with Team Mexico right now. I'm done.
0: <laughs> That's episode one in a two-parter with Carrie Lee Merritt, author of Masterless Men. Thanks for listening to Farm to Tabor.